You're listening to Campus Review Radio. So, yes, the term neurodiversity. So the term was was developed by autism and Asperger's um, advocates and, and activists to refer to, you know, initially mostly to, to Aspie people, but you could broaden the term out really to cover anybody with unusual mental traits, personality traits, mental disorders, right? So neurodiversity, the way I was using it, was, was pretty broad. <laughs> it, you know, covered the Asperger spectrum, but also like the schizophrenia spectrum, which ranges from just nor- like a little bit eccentric and quirky to people who have quote, schizotypy to full-blown schizophrenia. It would cover people with various um, mood disorders like bipolar or depression. It would cover people with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Or it just, for my purposes, almost anything that would make it um, hard to understand what other people find offensive, or hard to inhibit saying things that they might find offensive. And whether it's something that you truly believe, like if you have a weird kind of schizotypal paranoid conspiracy, or whether it's just you tend to literally blurt out profanity, like some people with Tourette syndrome. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so I, I, I just use neurodiversity quite broadly to mean anybody who just has brains that work a little differently and, that, and where that might affect their ability to um, follow speech codes or to inhibit sort of politically incorrect mm-hmm. speech. And so you've, you've pointed out some of the things I read that obviously a lot of brilliant people, a lot of academics tend to be on that spectrum or in, within that mm-hmm. umbrella term and that mm-hmm. political correctness or having to be, it has a chilling effect on these aspects if we use that umbrella term. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Almost all of the, the scientists I really respect, almost all the mentors who have been great to me have been aspects. They've been geeks and nerds and unusual people with eccentric interests and who just don't respect or follow kind of mainstream um, politics or ideologies or religions. And, you know, many of them have learned to cope with a politically correct academic environment, but some haven't. Um, Some find it really aversive and they get into trouble or they leave voluntarily. So my thought experiment in in this paper was what if Sir Isaac Newton had time traveled to the present given how weird and eccentric and and aspy and uh, ornery he was. Mm. I'd say I love that term as well. I've heard you use that a few times. Yeah. It's a very American term, but yeah, I enjoy it. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty ornery. <laughs> Punctual, but ornery. Um, so Newton would have um, almost certainly gotten into trouble if he'd been, you know, a standard tenure track professor mm-hmm. in any American or Australian or British university. And some folks might say, well, good riddance, you know, if you drive people like that out of academia. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, who do you have left in science, technology, engineering, and math if you do that? If you get rid of all the, the geeks and nerds and eccentrics because they don't toe the line politically, 
then you don't have a university anymore. You don't really have the hard sciences, the behavioral sciences. You're, you're just going to nuke your talent. Yeah. And that's, that's one of my concerns. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the, the piece you wrote, you, know, you were talking about, you mentioned, you have examples like social and management settings and teaching settings are the mm-hmm. places, obviously, where you would feel that. Do you think it affects your writing and the things you choose to research as well? Oh, for sure. Um, I've, I've researched a lot of unusual or taboo topics in, in my life that I probably wouldn't have had the... Um, say the guts. I would have had better judgment in career management if I hadn't been asked me. I would have done some kind of mainstream cognitive psychology or social psychology that was inoffensive or that was politically correct. Because your, your area of expertise deals with sex a lot, right? Yeah, yeah, I do a lot of sex research. I work on behavior genetics and you know the inheritance of traits, mm-hmm. behavioral traits. Um, that's subject to a lot of political reaction from the left. Um, you know, I'm currently researching um, like polyamory and open relationships, which are heavily stigmatized. Um, but as a sort of Aspie systematizer who's just interested in understanding behavior, I'm willing to go to those places. Yeah. And I think we need people who have that sort of um, contempt for social norms, in a way, to push mm-hmm. the boundaries of, of behavioral research. And so do you think then that's something that neuronormative, which I think is the term you may have used, um, people will lack then because they're worried about political correctness or worried about going up the chain in management and not offending people? Absolutely. I think the the neurotypical or the normies can be much more successful kind of controlling for, you know, IQ and hard work Mm. because they have... um, they choose research that's less offensive and more fundable. They get along better with their colleagues and administrators. They don't offend their students as much. Yeah. Um, they sometimes have easier relationships with the people they're, they're mentoring if they have political disagreements with them. Mm-hmm. And they also have easier, and particularly they have easier interactions with the media and the public. And we academics are expected to reach out and engage with the public. Mm-hmm. A lot of universities prioritize that, but if, if you sort of push Aspies to do that, there will be some friction that, that develops because the Aspies, you know, think a lot of the political values held by uh, the general public or journalists are kind of dumb. It's not all as nice as coffee and brunch in, right. in Sydney. Yeah. So you're a good journalist, but there's <laughs> bad busy. journalists out there. Yeah, you know? 100%. So have you, uh, can you think of times or times when you've thought about censoring your teaching? Oh, I do censor my teaching. Yeah? Um, there's several topics. I just even want, in your even, topic? Even, even, even when I'm teaching human sexuality, even when I try to scare away on the first day the students who might have the worst reactions to controversial materials. Still, there's certain um, issues that I know could just too easily lead me into trouble. And it's not just me, it's everybody I know who teaches human sexuality. 
um, or anything related to it in, in any um, behavioral sciences department. And I can't even tell you what those topics are because I'd even get into trouble for you know, revealing. Well, you mentioned which that like, doing a list of taboos is taboo. You said yes. you said something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I was kind of thinking. I was having a conversation with my partner recently, and I don't know if you saw that mm -hmm. Kendrick Lamar scolded a, a a someone jumped up on stage with him and they used the N word. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that. I said, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that's bad. And then we got onto the topic of people being mm -hmm. able to use that word yep. in conversation about the word and about academia. She's told me off for using it or yeah. you know, the odd time and in private when we're yeah. talking about it. So you can't use that word. I was like, well, if you're talking about it in, in the discussion academically, you should be able to use it because yeah. it is only a word in general. So yeah, yeah it's, it's weird that the taboos have become taboos as well, that we even mention them. I, mean, I even know people teaching social psychology um, and you know, lecturing on prejudice, discrimination, and stigmatizing, and they will reference these racial slurs and mention them in, in class as examples of racial slurs that are stigmatizing and that, that, that lead to prejudice and discrimination, and they even get into trouble for that. Mm. So it's so stigmatized you can't even mention the words when you're discussing stigma. Yeah. Which makes it almost impossible even to do research or teaching of, you know, about certain kinds of prejudice. So it's almost like, do you find you, you don't have a th free thought? Are your thoughts censored mm -hmm. almost? Or? Of course you end up having to censor your thoughts because if, if you're an academic and you speak and write for a living and certain things are, are not allowed to be said or written, then you have to develop an internal sensor to try to just stop even thinking in certain ways about certain issues. Because um, you can't rely on kind of um, a firewall between what you think versus what you say. Mm -hmm. There will be informal situations like lab group meetings or faculty parties or um, discussions at conferences, um, particularly where people get kind of tipsy or disinhibited or whatever. And then, you know, stuff will come out that could get you into trouble. So I think there's a lot of mental self-censorship, not just verbal self-censorship. Yeah. When did you start, I mean, you come in at this from a totally different sort of viewpoint mm -hmm. than is typical here in Australia, especially it's normally a very political loaded left-right yeah. thing. Um, when did you start noticing this creeping in in your career? Like at what point in your career were you like, wow, this is something yeah. I have to consider? Oh, it was really early. I mean, as soon as I got interested in evolutionary psychology, you know, early in grad school, circa 1989. As far back as then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'm 53 now. I've been in academia for a long time. Um, but as soon as I got into grad school and I got interested in human evolution and genetics and sexuality and, um, and all of that, it became clear that Number one, my career track would be much harder, mm -hmm. just in terms of getting jobs and funding. And number two, that I'd have to be, I'd have to learn to be really careful in talking with colleagues about these issues. So it's been. Uh, 
I think it's been an ongoing struggle for everybody who. Thank you very much. It's all right. Thank you. Everybody who works in my field, evolutionary psychology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's been. But I think it got worse with the culture wars in America in the late 80s, early 90s. And then things kind of calmed down a bit in the late 90s, early aughts. And then you've got this more recent wave of political correctness about the last five or 10 years. Yeah. That's become much more intense than mm-hmm. anything we, we saw before. And when did you come, when did you start coming to the realization that it maybe had something to do with um, you being Aspie or on that spectrum in that? Did you come to that pretty early? Was it always at that? I mean, um, even throughout your life before academia, were you always kind of thinking about that? Or? I mean, I always knew I was sort of a you know, socially awkward nerd, and I always loved the company of um, nerds, both you know, as as male friends and as girlfriends. So I knew that was a personal challenge for me, but I didn't I didn't really connect it to the free speech issue. Really, until a few months before I wrote this, this collab piece last year. Yeah. It, um, I just didn't see those dots, but but I'd read so much about the, the diversity initiatives. Mm-hmm. They all had to do with race, ethnicity, and sex, and none of them had to do with the kinds of individual differences, um, like mental disorders and personality traits that I was studying. And I thought, well, wait, there's a double standard here. Like, academia is very welcoming to people from different racial groups, both sexes, but they're, they're, they're not actually making any accommodations for Aspies or nerds or geeks or, or even anybody with any of the other mental disorders that I mentioned. You're listening to Campus Review Radio 